This Season 5 premiere episode of Behind Grey Walls has been generously sponsored by Doug and Karen Mulberry, the best in-laws an outlaw like me could ask for. They included the message, in tribute to Anthony and Skye for all your hard work on the podcast that continues to educate and bring enjoyment to Idahoans and others. We want to thank Doug and Karen for their sponsorship of this episode. We appreciate your support and will continue our mission to preserve and promote Idaho history. This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He says, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's, if it's uh, a killing or whatever. You just don't see it. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls. We're back. We're back. Wow. Hooray. Hi, Sky. How Hi. are you? I'm good. How are you, Anthony? I'm good. Any New Year's resolutions? Um, any New Year's resolutions? I mean, just to like exist in the world at nice. this point, I yeah. feel like is it just, you know, I don't want to I don't want to put too many high hopes out there yeah. and then have them all get crushed <laughs> uh, like we did last year. I think many of us had a lot of things we wanted to do that did not happen. And so really, you know, I got to I got to keep expectations low. Yeah. So just to survive is probably a New Year's resolution. Yeah. How about yourself? I don't I don't want the media that I consume uh-huh. to affect my daily life. Mm, I think that's, that's been like one. my biggest thing. Don't yeah. let the news affect how I interact with you or right. with my other coworkers or my wife or right. my no, dog, you know. One. So I think that's Well, I hope it doesn't affect how you interact with Olive. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Olive no. just doesn't know. <laughs> no, she's she's such a stinker. <laughs> she would just throw it right back at me. Yeah, totally. Like, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, new year, new season, right? <sighs> yeah, I am so glad to be back. We're back to our, our usual, talking mm-hmm. about prisoners' lives. And mm-hmm. it's fun to get through the right season. Yeah. And oh my gosh, did we learn a lot. <laughs> we really did. Hopefully well, you guys did too. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> that was a, those are some dense episodes and I feel yeah, proud yeah. of uh the work we put into it. And totally. Yeah, I hope everybody took something away from it and I'm ready to get back to kind of focusing on the men and women that served time. Totally. Here, so. I'm ready to talk about my ladies again. Yeah. I've missed my ladies, <laughs> with the exception of Mary Crumroy, which she was she was a trip to uh to <laughs> research, but <laughs> But I'm ready. I've got some good ladies lined up for the season. So Excellent. Well, let's just jump right in. Totally. All right. So I am going to start with a fella named Peter Jeremy Martin. So this last year, it was, it was a huge whirlwind. <laughs> and we had so many exciting stories. This all occurred at the end of the road at the Old Pen, right mm-hmm. on Warren Springs Avenue, right there, mm-hmm. and then down Broadway Avenue. So okay. these are very prominent yeah. streets. Anyone who comes to the Old Pen, you've probably well you've had to have driven on it unless you hiked here from table rock or something so last year we had a program called 13 stories Mm -hmm. and we had local film crews recreate Mm -hmm. 
prison stories. And of course, one of them that we passed on was Kenneth Hastings' story, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorites. And while this film crew was out doing this, they were filming the the scene where Kenneth stabbed the guard that was in the car with him mm-hmm. and then stole a, a vehicle behind him and drove off up, up into the foothills. Mm-hmm. And this woman witnessed this, and she was an older woman, and she said, I was in the backseat of that car when, when this happened. Like, I remember this. And it turns out it wasn't Kenneth Hastings. There was no little girl in the back seat, but this woman, she was five years old, and she was in the back seat of a car as a prisoner, Peter Jeremy Martin, Wow. Stole this vehicle. And this is about 10 years after Kenneth Hastings' escape attempt, right. so in 1960. So, so just to be clear, she saw the filming of it yeah. and said, oh, I remember that. Yeah. Okay, that's crazy. Isn't like, it? that's, the. I mean, I don't yeah. know if you believe in a higher power or what, but that's, I mean, the most massive coincidence right? of, like, all time. Oh, my gosh. And the film crew, they were blown away. They were like, uh, excuse me? Right. She's like, yeah, I've lived here all my life, and, yeah. and just kind of told her story, and they were like... Wow, you know, this isn't included in the, any of the history that mm. they sent us. Mm-hmm. Anthony didn't talk about it in the podcast. Right. And, you know, whew, I found the real story. I found the man who right, actually right. did this. And so, and then, of course, if, if you're interested in seeing any of these films from these 13 stories premiere, they're all on our YouTube page. So go to YouTube, search Old Idaho Penitentiary, and you'll find all of our videos and then this 13 story series. And they are. Some really entertaining ones. You'll see a Vilm Busey one. That's mm. that's one of my favorite ones. Okay. It's just straight up horror. Uh, <laughs> you'll see, I mean, a lot of the people that we've covered on the yeah. podcast, you know, brought to life mm. by, by local uh, actors, talent, you know, cool. filmmakers. So definitely check those out. So back to my prisoner this week, Peter Jeremy Martin. My sources today are Peter Martin's Inmate Files, the Idaho Statesman, Newspaper.com, which has newspapers from Twin Falls and Pocatello, uh, Library of Congress, Chronicling America, articles from Encyclopedia of Arkansas.net on the Tucker Telephone, Tucker Prison Farm, and Cummins Prison Farm, and articles from Encyclopedia.com, Wikipedia, and the DepartmentStoreMuseum.org on the ZCMI. He was born December 27, 1937, in Detroit, Michigan, to Donovan and Jeanette Martin. He was the second child of four siblings. He had three sisters named Joan, Mary, and Catherine, whom he affectionately called Squirt. And uh, his father was born in Iowa, and his mother was from Saskatoon, Canada. But she moved to the United States at an early age. The family moved around 1941-1942 to Idaho, and his father had all kinds of jobs, you know, working in upholstery, he was a mechanic, he worked in construction, he worked for the Morrison Knudsen Company, which, that's a pretty prominent name, uh, a lot mm. of you are probably familiar with it. <laughs> uh, they began here in the southwest Idaho, and it, they are like leading experts in engineering, and we can thank them for, you know, Bogus Basin, the New York Canal, countless bridges mm. and roads across the country, railroads, all kinds of things, hydroelectric dams, you know, all across the country. So pretty prominent company that all started here in Idaho. Peter's father, he had all these jobs, had everything going. He had, you know, four little kids. He dies of a heart attack at the age of 44 in 1948. Mm. He's buried in Hagerman Cemetery, and he left Jeanette to raise the four young children alone. Peter was nine at the time, and his mother wrote that after his father's death, Peter became subdued and withdrawn and attempted to run away at one point. His father's death would be regarded as one of the causes of Peter's future outbursts. So his mother, Jeanette, or Nettie, was 
busy. She was working in a laundry in Hagerman before the family moved to Gooding, where she worked as a cook in the Idaho Tuberculosis Hospital in the early 1950s. And by 1954, she had started her own boarding house and remarried, but only for a short time before she divorced. Mm. Peter's sisters, they worked hard and even went to college. They were educated. But Peter, not so much. He wasn't into school. He got into an argument with his mother when he was about 16, and she kicked him out of the house. So mm-hmm. he ended up moving in with some friends. He completed the 10th grade and then dropped out before uh, completing any more school. He had a steady job throughout childhood running a newspaper route, and uh, he had a knack for mechanical work like his father. So he would fix bikes for money and then eventually started working on engines, on cars. And he basically filled his time doing that instead and uh, he got his first job in Gooding at Jim's Auto Wrecking where he repaired and maintained cars in 1956. While his mother was a devout Methodist urging Peter to join her at church every Sunday, Peter rarely went proclaiming himself agnostic. So with little direction but an interest in mechanics, Peter joined the United States Air Force with 16 other Magic Valley men and one woman at Fort Douglas near Salt Lake City on August 17, 1956. He was stationed in Montgomery, Alabama at Maxwell Air Force Base, which is like where the Wright brothers actually Mm -hmm. first established that. And uh, he completed high school during his service and actually uh, reported taking college courses while in the Air Force. And he rose from Airman Basic to Airman Third Class. And despite his attitude against authority figures, it seemed like a pretty decent fit for him. For a while, like most things, the thrill of being in the Air Force wore off pretty quickly, and Peter ran out of spending money, and uh, his girlfriend is having some issues with her. So what better thrill than a little joyride? So he had a few brushes with the law leading to his incarceration here, which started as traffic violations for excessive speed. He was a speed demon, and he would later tell prison authorities that he often, quote, liked to go 100 miles per hour in a car just for the kicks. Well, and 100 miles an hour in, when is, this is like the 50s? 1950s, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's, that is, I mean, I can cars go that fast? I mean, I don't know anything about cars, but like cars now going 100, I would be terrified. <laughs> <laughs> like, we have, you know, like... I mean, power steering. Can yeah. you imagine trying to drive 100 miles an hour without it? Boat? Yeah, like, wow. oh man. I, I mean, look at look at this car that he's. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that is. I mean, that reminds me of the car that Grace Elizabeth Scott is driving, and you just like imagine just having yeah. to like crank the wheel to get oh it. This big. Gosh. It's it is a boat. Like yeah. you're absolutely right. It's a it's a boat, driving a boat on the road 100 miles an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. No, yeah. I'm good. I, I'm a I'm a grandpa driver, so I'm always that person on War Springs who's like going 25 miles per hour, just like enjoying all the historic houses. So oh, me too. Just honk at me. I'll speed up. Don't worry. <laughs> so, on the Fourth of July, 1957, he decides to steal a 1956 Monterey Mercury bearing a South Carolina license plate. So this is in Montgomery. The Montgomery Advisor newspaper article I came across said that there was a reward offered for the recovery of the car. And five days later, on July 9th, he was arrested in Panama City, Florida for, quote, reckless driving by excessive speeds. (laughs) He was fined. Word, apparently, of the stolen vehicle had not reached Florida yet. So... Back Two when days. News, news just traveled differently. It did. Like it's right. so crazy to think about. I know. Now it's like instantaneous. Yeah, like APB. you. Yep. It's totally. across the country. Yep. Yeah. 
So two days later, he's passing through Van Buren, Arkansas, where he stopped at a Bell service station and held up the place, quote, at the point of a gun. He left with $37.35, but was arrested two days later on July 13th when officers spotted the stolen 1956 Monterey Mercury. He's placed in the jail in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and within the week, pled guilty to robbery and arrived at the Arkansas State Penitentiary on July 19th, 1957. Very quick justice. Mm -hmm. He was discharged from the Air Force under conditions other than honorable two months later on September 18th, 1957. That would kind of follow him throughout his life, his dishonorably discharge. He entered the Arkansas prison system as number 49537. In 1957, Arkansas had two prison sites, and Peter could have been sent to either the Cummins State Prison Farm, southeast of Pine Bluff, Arkansas, kind of in south-central Arkansas, or the Tucker State Prison Farm, northeast of Pine Bluff, and a little closer to Little Rock. Mm -hmm. So a little history of these prisons. Uh, 1902, 10,000 acres of property consisting of two plantations called Maple Grove and Cummins were purchased and served originally as the prison for African-American prisoners to farm, establishing this brutal self-sustaining system that reflected the slavery structure from the not-too-distant past. By the 1930s, the prison began holding adult prisoners of all races, but in segregated units uh, organized into barracks. The system relied on trustees, but unlike Idaho trustees, Arkansas prison trustees actually patrolled the prison. They were fed and cared for better than other prisoners Mm. and were given weapons to oversee other prisoners. Oh, boy. They were in charge of punishing other prisoners, including whipping, beating, and even shooting them. Yeah, I I just kept thinking of the Stanford I just thought of the same exact thing. Yeah, that experiment that went terribly wrong. And that was with college students. With college students, you tell someone that they are, you know, a position of authority, Mm -hmm. and that's what they are. Like, that's... Psychology is so fascinating. So That's so funny that we thought of, I I almost said it and I was like, oh, I, I, I won't touch that. But I'm glad you, yeah, totally what I thought of. So, so like despite regular and almost constant criticism of this plantation and trustee style system, it remained in place until around early 1970 when reformers finally started to uh, dismantle it. And uh, Johnny Cash actually came in and performed there Mm. at Cummins in 1969 and donated $5,000 to help build a chapel there Mm. and and help them with that. So the other prison farm, it was a 4,400-acre Tucker prison farm, and it was purchased in 1916, and it was originally only there to house white prisoners. So kind of two segregated Mm -hmm. prisons, two Mm -hmm. different institutions. And you see 10,000 acres for the... African-American prisoners, Mm -hmm. 4,400 acres for the white prisoners. So Mm. different size prisons, Mm -hmm. different farms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When the original Arkansas State Penitentiary, nicknamed The Walls, was closed in 1933, the electric chair, which was nicknamed Old Sparky, was moved to the Tucker Prison Farm. And it wasn't the only shocking device there. Tucker also had what they called the Tucker Telephone. You ever heard of this? Mm Mm-mm. It was fashioned out of an old crank telephone wired with two batteries with electrodes coming out of it. The electrodes would be attached to a prisoner's big toe and to their genitals. Oh. When a trustee cranked the telephone, because of course it would be another prisoner, a trustee who would be doling out the punishment, uh, an electric shock would shoot through Eef. the man's body. I took a whole class on slavery this last semester and the, the, you know, the essentially torture devices that they had for the enslaved who misbehaved. And 
you know, how just it, it's depravity, the things that they come up with. Yeah. And again, that's not anything as like against Southerners as a, as a whole, but there were certainly individuals who sort of, you know, may have taken some, some demented pleasure in, in coming up oh. with these ways to, to torture people, which is, I mean, horrifying. So, yeah. So this Tucker telephone, it may have been around when Peter was doing his time there, though a lot of the sources said that it was used mostly between the 1960s and 1970s, mm. which... That's really recent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of the two prison farms in Arkansas Peter could have been sent to, he drew the unfortunate straw and ended up at Tucker. Mm. So he served a little over a year there. And being a mere 19-year-old, the Tucker prison farm, that would have been so difficult for Peter. And he alluded to his time in the penitentiary while later speaking to Idaho prison authorities, telling them that he feared returning to Arkansas, where he described his treatment as brutal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't know many more details, but just knowing what was going on there, how the system worked there, like you can only imagine what Mm -hmm. he experienced. So after this brutal year and a half in the Arkansas State Penitentiary, Peter was released on parole to Idaho on March 7th, 1959. He had work lined up and a mother ready to try again with him. Unfortunately, it seems that his time in Arkansas probably worsened his behavior. So a month after his return, he suffered an accident and injured his right ankle, but that didn't stop him from signing up for some dance lessons. Uh, by the end of 1959, he had learned many dance moves and owed over $250 to his dance instructor. Mm. This would never be paid. Sure. Uh, I can guess he probably learned at that time, like the, the jitterbug and the twist <laughs> and like, the slide, yeah, uh, yeah. kind of other American right. bands yeah, dance. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> you know, Elvis, like all, mm-hmm. all that was going on. Totally. Uh, in, in July 1959, Peter admitted to burglarizing the Idaho Wholesale Supply Store in Shoshone County up in North Idaho, kind of mm-hmm. Wallace. Uh, but I couldn't find any details about the burglary, so it may not have been reported in newspapers or mm-hmm. been reported with something else. A month later, he uh, gambled big on August 14, 1959, when he forged a check for $243 with the name Chalmer Martin cashed at the First Security Bank here in Boise. Any guesses what $243 was in 59? Um, I would think it's, um, maybe like 550. $2,173. Oh I know. Money I'm out of practice. The 50s just went, <laughs> I, yeah. I had to double check it cause I was like, no, yeah, that, that's a lot. That is huge mark. Wow. So that's August 14th. On August 22nd, 1959, Peter burglarized the Bullock Motor Company in Pocatello, where he stole five tires and tubes, a small amount of cash, and another car. (laughs) He then took a joyride to Salt Lake City, where he cashed a forged check under the name Philip Hewitt at the ZCMI. Do you know what that is? No, I don't even know what it would be. It's the the Zion Cooperative Mercantile Institution, which is... This little uh, Salt Lake gem, it was founded October 9th, 1868 by Brigham Young and hailed the slogan, America's First Department Store. Mm -hmm. And it was actually developed because LDS church members were actually being discriminated against in the city by non-Mormons. Which is so interesting because that city wouldn't exist without... Right. And also they're the majority of people who, especially at that time, would have lived there. That's very funny it sounds like uh so they were forced to pay basically higher Mm. prices on on Mm. goods and so basically what they did is they kind of 
gathered together for orders and bought huge bulk things so that they get it really discounted. Right. I mean, and so it's like a Mormon it. Costco. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of an early like business co-op and is right. hailed as like one of the first department stores in, hmm. in our country, which is pretty, that pretty is interesting. interesting. Huh. I found this website, the departmentstoremuseum.org, which talks, it's got a history of all these department stores across the country mm-hmm. and a whole page on the ZCMI hmm. there. And uh, it's it was just interesting to read all of these comments from people who used to work there or right. used to go there every week. So he cashes this check there, and then he returns to Idaho. And I actually found an article in the Idaho State Journal out of Pocatello mm-hmm. uh, from three days later with the headline, Thief Returns Car After 451-Mile Joyride. A Busy Thief drove a stolen car 451 miles between Friday night and Sunday morning and returned the car to Bullock's used car lot, Maine and Whitman. The car was taken sometime Friday night, police were told. Burglars entered the office and took the keys to the car. Sunday morning, Robert Nolden, manager of the lot, told police the car was back at the lot. Mileage records showed that 451 miles had been added to the speedometer. And so, of course, I had a Google map. And Mm. uh, it's about 230 miles from this lot, this area to Salt Lake. So hmm. there and back would be about 460 yeah. or so miles. Right. So it was like, oh yeah, that all kind of <laughs> pans out. So August 29th, 1959, he still hasn't been busted. Of right. course, okay. all these, all these little shenanigans each month. It's just mm-hmm. one heist, mm-hmm. another little heist. Hmm. On August 29th, 1959, around three in the morning, Peter drives into Burley, Idaho, mm-hmm. and parks his 1951 Ford about a quarter of a block away from the Fearless Ferris Stinker Station on East Main Street. Now, I tried to figure out if this was the same car, if he stole a different mm-hmm. car. I never got to the bottom of that. But uh, he approaches the station with a black shirt pulled partly over his face, armed with a 22 caliber revolver. The manager, his name was Merlin Lind, which is the coolest name, was manning the station and peter charged in and demanded the cash and merlin complied handing over 123 dollars from the till which is about 1100 dollars today peter told merlin to turn around he then struck merlin over the head with a revolver (laughs) merlin fell to the ground but feigned unconsciousness peter fled the station hopped into his car and got onto us highway 30 to flee burley merlin immediately hopped to his feet phoned police who broadcast the robbery A young Rupert police officer named Ned Warner was on his way to Rupert on Highway 30 and heard Buela Christensen, Burley desk sergeant, report the robbery over the radio at 3.25 a.m. A car was passing Officer Warner on the highway, and on a hunch, he turned his car around and followed the driver. It turned out to be Peter Martin. Asked later what alerted him, the policeman said, quote, something about the way the driver handled the car aroused my suspicion, end quote. I imagine he's going like mm-hmm. 80 miles right. Well, he does love to do that speed, and he actually has a reason to do it now. Yes, yeah. I know, That's that was my first thought. Was like, well, I wonder, too, if like if this is a new, different stolen car, he probably has to sort of still get oh, used to the way yeah. that it handles and stuff. Maybe, yeah. So when this police officer arrests him, the, the revolver's in the back seat when he arrives, mm. and so... Peter actually waives his preliminary hearing and was held on a $2,500 bond. He ended up just pleading guilty, mm-hmm. and he was charged with robbery and sentenced to not more than 15 years in the Idaho State Penitentiary, received at the penitentiary on September 16, 1959. So his Bertillion, Peter Jeremy Martin, number 10310, he was sentenced to 15 years, crime, robbery, plea, guilty, county, Casha, 
race, white, age, 22, height, 5 feet 9 inches tall, weight, 152 pounds, eyes brown, hair brown, complexion medium, military record, Air Force in August 17th, 56, out September 18th, 57, type of discharge other than honorable, occupation, auto mechanic, marital status, single, children, none, education, 10th grade. So everything we just kind of covered there. His teeth were in fair condition. He had a distinguished birthmark in his uh, shoulder and several scars on his arms, hands, and knees. And he had a tattoo of a skull and crossbones pierced by a dagger on his left bicep. Hmm. Warden Clapp stated that when they first met, Peter told him, quote, he had planned to escape at the first opportunity, end quote. His time at the Idaho State Penitentiary. <laughs> That's so bold. <laughs> right? Hey, Warden, so just so you know, I'm planning on getting out of here oh, yeah. as soon as I can. I mean, I think he was a little bit uh, snotty, a little mouthy. I mean, he's pretty young, right? 22. <laughs> yeah. So he probably didn't really ever get out of his, like, rebellious teenager phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Dang. Yeah. Bold of him. I, I mean, he lives up to this, so... <laughs> He arrives, and he was sent to the fish tank, which at the time was located at number one house, or what we call new cell house, or the 1890s cell house. And, you know, a bulk of Peter's file consists of letters from his mother to the warden. Okay. And so I want to make a quick shout out to our staff members here, Emily Fritchman and Megan Nelson, who actually helped transcribe, like, almost all of these letters and, you know, figure out uh, Jeanette's handwriting Mm -hmm. which was pretty difficult (laughs) at times so thank you so much emily megan that was fantastic so one of the earliest letters came in october 1959 and it said dear gentlemen much of my son's trouble began when he when he lost his dad at the early age of nine years his resentment toward personal and family began then i feel certain resentment toward a one certain boy whose dad pushed him into all leading roles school plays Baseball, football, was distasteful to Pete, as they were a rowdy drinking family. That may have had a pattern effect on Pete's drinking later on. I am sure he must have felt much alone with three sisters and no male relative or friend to turn to. Many things I could have done differently if I had but realized then, as I do now, even with the little education I've had and having to get out and make a living for my family. His experience with the Air Force was good in the beginning. He wrote me of making it a career. His girl gave him up a few months later. Resentment again, too much free time, resented discipline, then A-W-O-L and the sentence at the A-D-P. Coming home was a happy time. Pete was at work two days later, was gainfully employed, but for a lapse of a week or so till his crime in Burley. No doubt Mr. Avery has talked with Pete and can summarize the and there's a blank that they couldn't mm-hmm. decipher. Yeah. Uh, Pete acclaimed himself more than I can write you about. It all totals up to a broken home at a tender age, frustrations, insecurity that occurs when so much is the case and my inability to cope with it all. I hope that whatever help can be given Pete, he will accept and gain knowledge and wisdom through it. I hope that he can be kept real busy away from hardened criminals. If I can be of any help in any way, please advise me. I want to thank you, gentlemen, for the interest you show in my son. Sincerely, Jeanette K. Martin. P.S. If music helps, Pete has or had a good voice. Thanks again. She had a heart of gold. There are so many things. And all three of us, as we were trying to read and decipher these letters, Mm -hmm. we're like crying. Like, we all cried reading these. Because it's, oh, anyway, I'll... 
I'll keep going. We'll yeah. see why. <laughs> so in September, a letter arrives for Warren Clapp from W.P. Ball, the director of the Interstate Probation and Parole Compact with the state of Arkansas, requesting a revocation of Peter Martin's parole from their institution and a detainer, meaning that after he served his sentence mm-hmm. here in Idaho, he'd be shipped back to Arkansas to finish out his sentence Ooh, there. Yeah. So Peter actually writes to the director of the Board of Pardons in Arkansas on October 29, 1960, telling him, quote, Having written you numerous times before and having received no satisfactory action on my alleged parole violation, I shall be forced to state several facts pertinent to the case at hand. So... I, let me just say, Peter is intelligent. Mm-hmm. Like, all the prison files, they're all like, this man is so smart. Mm-hmm. Like, if he could just direct mm-hmm. that into something. Right. So let me continue here. This is this is all his writing. Okay. First, you must realize that you are in error in your proposed attempt to extradite me from this state. I am not and never have been a fugitive from the justice of the state of Arkansas. When I was paroled to the state of Idaho, the state of Arkansas lost jurisdiction as its power existed only within the state boundaries. Secondly, I should like to bring it to your attention that when you allowed Idaho to have jurisdiction and prosecute, you forever lost the jurisdiction as no two states may have jurisdiction over the same person at the same time. Thirdly, this is my favorite part. Let me state from memory a few lines from an <laughs> Idaho code. This is from, oh my gosh. <laughs> from memory. An asylum state has no choice between honoring the extradition requests of the demanding state and preserving its own rights when it clearly appears that the jurisdiction invoked is exhausted by the right of comedy. It must, to preserve its own rights, refuse the extradition request. Idaho state codes further provide that a person on all extradition proceedings shall be taken before a magistrate forthwith notified of the charges, given time for the service of habeas corpus, and allowed to make bond. If you wish to underwrite the cost of sending your officials together with the necessary paraphernalia to represent your state at the various stages of the habeas corpus proceedings, that is your affair. I do suggest that you consult at length and in detail with your attorney general prior to deciding. (laughs) I shall challenge the original conviction on the grounds of no counsel and the institution itself on the grounds of violations of the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution. This should afford no end of publicity, and I suggest that you consider the worth of such doings. I, I mean, I know he has legal textbooks in front of him, but right. it's just like, what? I do think it's very funny that he's writing a letter, but he's like, let me tell you from memory. Like, (laughs) if I were reading this, I'd be like, yeah, okay, sure. Like, it's one thing if you're going to get up in front of the parole board and cite something from memory, but to be writing it, like, it's from my memory. I'd be like, "Mm -mm, okay. Yeah. And I imagine getting, um, because again, he just is very bold. And I I mean, certainly arrogant would I I think think be a word to describe it as well. It's fear too. Like, he's like, I have got to come off as I don't and I don't because he does not want to go back to Arkansas yeah. like I don't blame him and eighth med amendment uh, excessive bail shall not be required nor excessive fines imposed nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted he was like mm-hmm. I'm gonna yeah. make this a national totally. headline and let you know my experiences in your institution Good. if you try to bring me back I mean can you imagine the authorities who got that letter and how <laughs> mad they were right. oh can you oh they would have been so mad i'm sure yeah well the, after, you know that this inmate is citing law to them <laughs> i think it happened it happens i think it still happens all the time mm-hmm. but and oh, he's just he's kind of a stinker i don't yep, know he is they actually dropped the detainer after a Ooh. few years they drop it again so it worked it i think it did 
<laughs> so while incarcerated, Peter actually received regular letters and packages from his mother, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, and friends. Like every Christmas, he'd get all these packages from all these people, mm-hmm. all these goodies. And man, he's such a stinker. I just <laughs> even, ah. So his first job, he actually got one in the institution, was as a waiter in the dining hall, which he started September 18th, 59. He was transferred to number two yard in the tool room for the carpentry shop on January 4th, 1960. And in September 1960, he got a job in two yard in the record office. And then from there, he actually bumped over to the position as a clerk in the machine shop, which was a perfect place to collect materials for an escape. So before we go there, let me introduce you to the deputy warden. His name was Alexander Mann, though everyone knew him by his nickname, Scotty. Mm-hmm. Why Scotty? Well, he was born on December 21st, 1894 in Scotland. He's a bit of a Scotsman. He was a Scotsman. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine his accent, like next to Captain yeah. Munch. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that would have <laughs> been be fun. So fun to watch. Right. But Captain Munch came a little bit later, mm. so... Uh, so he came to the United States in 1927, started work as a guard in shipyards, and he worked in Portland, Oregon through World War II before moving to Twin Falls in 1945. Two years later, he moved with his family to Boise and found a job here at the Idaho State Penitentiary, where he was listed as assistant captain in the 1947 and 48 biennial reports. In 1951, he was promoted to superintendent of operations and was present during the 52 riot in which prisoners shacked up in the shirt factory and were flushed out when guards shot the tear gas canisters inside. That was when they were upset about the horseshoes Mm -hmm. pit and, you know, just missing out on all their fun activities while they had to work to build their own cell houses. Lots more going Hmm, on there, but... uh, He was uh, promoted to deputy warden between 1953 and 1954, which was a position he would hold until his retirement. He was present, actually, during the 1958 riot as well, in which guards were held captive Mm -hmm. and held hostage, but he was fortunate to not be caught up in that. So, January 19th, 1961, this 66-year-old veteran deputy warden Alexander Scotty Mann was driving Peter Martin and another prisoner named Bruce Ledbetter back to the prison after a visit to a dentist's office on North Latos Street across from Morris Hill Cemetery. So it's... It's where uh, there's this salon called Sheer Joy Salon and Spa. That's where it's at right now, kind of right in that area, just to give Boise listeners an idea. Peter and Bruce were actually handcuffed in the backseat of the vehicle to a chain that actually wrapped around their waist. Mm. Unbeknownst to the deputy warden, Peter had a key he had fashioned in the machine shop. He fumbled around in the backseat with a lock on his handcuffs and finally picked one of them after about 20 minutes of driving. And it's about a 20-minute drive, mm. especially mm-hmm. back in those days. They were on Warmstrings Avenue, just about to turn up the road, when Scotty heard one of the prisoners say, We're getting near the penitentiary again. A moment later, Peter reached into his pocket, pulled out a shank and two-inch penknife blade taped to a piece of wood, and he reached forward, grabbed Scotty's head, and put the knife to his throat. Oh he gosh. said, This is it, old man. Stop the car or I'll cut your throat, and I mean it. Instead, Scotty... He actually turns to struggle, and Martin slashed his throat several times with the knife. And the car was still moving and actually went off to the side of the road and struck a tree. Peter jumped out of the vehicle and ran west on Warm Springs. Scotty actually jumped out of his seat to chase him when Bruce Ledbetter, the other prisoner, said, Watch out, Scotty, you're hurt, and actually pulled him back. Blood was gushing out of his throat. So 
actually, Bruce hopped out. He was still chained up, but he reached into his pocket and pulled a handkerchief and held it to Scotty's mm. throat. He didn't try to run off or anything, but he watched Peter run down Warm Springs All Avenue. Right. Right then, uh, the chaplain and future warden, Orville Stiles, Mm -hmm. was just leaving the penitentiary, and he saw Scotty there on the side of the road with Mm. blood coming down his throat. So he gets him in the back car. He drives him to the hospital, Mm. gets him taken care of. He calls the authorities, and city, county, and state officials, they immediately began setting up roadblocks all around the city to capture Peter. Peter, he ran from the scene and into the neighborhood nearby, and uh, the deputy warden's blood was all over his hands so he made it to the corner of bookdale and hot springs drive a couple blocks away so right where mnw is the little market oh yeah place that hot springs drive is just right there mm-hmm. right in front of that so he runs up that street okay. and he uh darts out between these two parked cars right into the middle of the street in front of this passing car which was driven by this woman named mrs foreman who was on her way to adams elementary school which is right there right next mm-hmm. to M&W, mm-hmm. uh, right there on Warm Springs. And she was going there to pick up her son. And her five-year-old daughter, Jane, was in the back seat. Peter said, I'm taking your car, lady. She responded, let me get my little girl. And took little Jane from the back seat. Mrs. Foreman would later say that Peter, quote, was polite, but she saw a look of fear in his eyes. Mm-hmm. She ran to a nearby house and phoned the police. Peter pulled out onto Warm Springs Avenue and, like so many times before, put the pedal to the metal. He ripped down the street, turned onto Broadway Avenue, took a left there, and headed towards the highway. A businessman from Salt Lake named Burt Brown was turning off of Highway 30, which is I-84 now, onto Broadway and saw Peter, quote, traveling at a terrific rate of speed, slam into a stone wall at the south end of Broadway. So Bert, he stops his car to help when Peter jumps from this wrecked vehicle and ran over to Bert. Peter said, quote, get me to a hospital quick. I'm hurt. So the driver saw the blood on Peter's hands and thought, Mm. you know, he's really injured. So he gets him in the car. They start heading north up Broadway. But Bert was from Salt Lake. He doesn't know where the hospitals are. So he actually sees this official looking car drive by. So he flags it down and it happens to be a vehicle full of sheriffs from Cache County. Ooh. And uh, they Who were know on... him. <laughs> well, that's the thing. They Ooh. should know him, but they don't recognize oh, him. Oh, man. He's... Peter, I imagine, yeah, totally. is covering his face. Yeah. He's covering his head. He sees these... Where he committed this crime. <laughs> Cache County. They had just dropped off a prisoner at the penitentiary. Oh, man. And, and he had must... He must have driven past them on Broadway as he sped down the road. Huh. Like, I... Oh, my gosh. So... They're, they're like, yeah, we can help you, but we don't we don't really know Boise either. So let us phone a, a Boise police Oh, station. gosh. And they were so concerned about Peter, who looked really injured, that they didn't have their radios going. They didn't hear that there was an escaped right? convict on the phone. Oh, man. <laughs> they, they actually pull off into a parking lot just north of Boise Avenue on Broadway, which is right where, like, Garfield Elementary is mm-hmm. or the Jiffy Clean Laundry mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. is. And they were waiting for a Boise officer, and... They don't hear any of these broadcasts. And this patrolman, his name was Richard Mouse from Boise, he's dispatched to help with the escort. And he has this hunch that, like, Mm -hmm. this all seems fishy. So he arrives kind of with this in mind. And and when he gets there, he immediately notices the uniform that Peter is wearing, the striped prison pants that he has on. And so he asks him, are you Peter Martin? Are you the escapee from the penitentiary? And Peter 
throws up his hands and admits it. And yeah, well, it's so interesting <laughs> that no one else noticed that that like you know yeah. sure it is the 1950s or but like people don't walk around wearing striped pants like that's right, yeah. part of the reason that that was the uniform yeah. like it you know that no one noticed that or thought anything of it and I, yeah huh. I think I, he just happened to luck out on people who were not from Boise, who, right, who totally. probably wouldn't have been as familiar, right. but still, like, St- I mean, it's like, not common fashion. Yeah, to wear. I mean, that would be like someone coming out in, like, orange pants, like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't want to assume anything, what's but that there, yeah. number on the, on right, the back exactly. seat of your yeah, pants yeah, yeah. for? <laughs> yeah. So he gets taken right back to the prison. He did not make it very far, but. Had he made it onto the yeah, interstate, it like could have been real bad. It could have been real bad. Yeah, he's led to solitary confinement, and this is when Warden Clapp noted the quote I shared above in, during his Bertillion quote. Barton told me that he had planned to escape at the first opportunity. He said that he hadn't planned it for today, and he didn't have any idea of where to go, just to get as far away from here as possible. I certainly appreciate the way local law enforcement groups acted. People in Boise can feel secure with them on duty. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. What would he have done in that, in Mrs. Foreman's car? Like, right. oh, how far would he have yeah. gotten? His documentation of the whole thing is essentially the same, except for the line about the part where he wrote, I held the knife to the left side of his neck. Instead of stopping, Deputy Warden Man turned toward me and grappled for the knife. And in the intervening period, the car ran into a tree and stopped. During the struggle, he got cut in the neck. So a little different from uh, the experience that man... <laughs> I mean, it, it's not as if the knife did the cutting, my friends. Like, <laughs> it's just, I, it just <laughs> happened. I don't know. Oh, yeah. And have you ever heard anything about Scotty? Scotty Mann? No, who was he? He was a deputy warden here. With, with Lou Clapp, he was a deputy warden. Uh, Scotty got his throat cut. Uh, some guy cut his throat. Uh, he was taking him to a doctor's office or something, and the guy got jump on him and cut his throat a little bit. But uh, and then what happened? Did he yeah. kill him? Or? No, no, he didn't die. He he, he bled though, but. Uh, uh, Scotty uh, Mann was a, he was a Scotchman, and uh, he, he was a wonderful person. He was a deputy warden here for Luke Clapp, and uh, he was an awful nice guy, Scotty was. So this all happened January 19th, 1961. And January 31st, 1961, his mother writes, Words cannot compensate my feelings in expressing my regret what my broken heart feels about my son's last terrible actions. I am so sorry indeed, which to you are just words, I expect, but please accept them, Mr. Clapp. I do hope your recovery will be soon and not too painful from the wound Pete inflicted. I only happened to hear of Pete's horrible crime today as I had missed reading of it in the Statesman newspaper when it happened. He writes me very seldom, and the last time I heard from him was after Christmas. His sisters Mary and Kathy had been to see him, and I had sent him a package of edibles with them. I just cannot comprehend his type of mentality. It is certainly not, and then an incomprehensible word. We have made every effort in tracing his dad's and my family tree since Pete's first, another undecipherable word, into crime. 
I can understand your feelings towards him, and I hope in some small measure you can appreciate my position as his mother. I am sorry I missed talking with you the last time I was able to see Pete, November 11th, 1960. His unresponsiveness to my suggestions when writing to him bothered me much. I had hoped to talk to you about correspondence courses for him, or maybe, maybe he, medical active, psychoactive, etc., necessary in helping. It isn't too late that through these chemicals he may be helped. That is, if such help is obtainable. I cannot give up if there is any hope whatsoever. I hope you do not think me foolish, or am I? What did he blank in his last escapade? Foolish, foolish idiot. I mean, what punishment? Please, Mr. Clapp, may I hear from you at your convenience? I am sincerely yours, Jeanette Martin. So, Warden Clapp responds a whole month later on March 1st, 1961. Dear Mrs. Martin, I am sorry I have not answered your letter sooner, but I have been away from the state part of the month, and with the legislator in session, I have been very busy. I first want to advise you it was Deputy Warden Alexander Mann your son attacked on January 19, 1961. He has been unable to return to work as yet, and according to the doctor, he missed death by a small margin. Subject will be prosecuted for attempted murder. He is presently in the detention ward with loss of all privileges. He will be detained there for at least one year and as much longer as is necessary to impress him of the rights of other people. We, of course, cannot understand his actions, but he seems to be unable to accept any responsibility and seems to live only for himself without any thought for other people. Very truly yours, L.E. Clapp, Warden. Alexander Scotty Mann, he actually recovers from the wound and is sent home. But by the first week of February, his condition relapsed, and then he was returned to the hospital. And after bouts back and forth in the hospital, he actually healed. Mm. It impacted him. Like, Mm -hmm. he never truly recovered, and he ended up retiring on July 1st, 1961. And he left Boise, moved to Ogden, Utah, and... It kind of ended his career. What this? Mm-hmm. What this punk kid did? Well, and to him. I mean, he was old too. He's sixty-six. You said right. Yeah, so 66. I mean, if I were his age, you know, and that <laughs> happened to me, I'd be like, I don't need to go back. Right. You know, that's it's so traumatizing, and then yeah. to to barely survive, and and you know, he probably was close to retirement age anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <sighs> man, just it's just such like a heartbreaking like last year on the job sort right? of thing that totally. like just because he moves he still has to deal with peter he actually served as the chief witness against peter martin Mm. in a trial and had to relive the experience Mm -hmm. on the stand peter's court appointed lawyer had no defense for him Mm. and so it took the jury 20 minutes of deliberation to find him guilty Mm -hmm. of escape of escape yeah not of attempted murder Mm. like like the warden initially stated so Peter was actually given an extra five years for escape from prison while charged with a felony and a sentence that would commence after he served his original 15-year sentence Mm. for robbery. So he's sent to Five House, sent to maximum security, immediately following his return to the prison. And he sat in a cell from January 19, 1961 to August 17, 1961, only leaving to go to the courthouse to be tried and charged. On August 17, 1961, he acquired some matches while in his maximum security cell and at 6.05 p.m. set fire to his mattress. Good. He was sent to the cooler as punishment because five houses is not enough. It was just one more quick thrill he got there. Uh, he finally returned to maximum security about 30 days later, and he remained there for nearly two years. Mm. 
during a brief uprising that occurred in April 1962 that I will definitely cover this season, and I wish we had covered in the last season, in which several maximum security prisoners rioted Mm -hmm. and held some hostages. Word got out around the town, and his worried mother wrote again to the Mm. warden, so... Please understand that I am only offering what I hope will be constructive criticism, Mr. Clapp. I fail to see what good can come from keeping a group of healthy young men in an isolated ward with absolutely nothing constructive to occupy their fertile minds. Can healthy attitudes and acceptable behavior occur to a confused mind when it is left to contemplate only its own unfortunate state? It seems to me that hard labor would be a boon in comparison. I sincerely believe parents of other inmates would echo my sentiments on this matter. Heart of gold. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So Warden Clapp responds that Peter, quote, did not take part in this demonstration and did not come out of his cell, even though he was threatened there would be bodily harm done to him if he did not. This, of course, is a good indication that subject may be starting to consider the rights of other people. I refer to your comments at the bottom of the page. We do not like to keep people confined in an isolation or locked in their cells when confined there. But it is our duty to protect the rights of society, other inmates, and employees which make this type of confinement necessary when taking care of men who have shown by their actions and are classified as maximum security risks. So, I mean, he he just lost one of his closest companions, Mm -hmm. you know, partners. And, of course, he's going to stand up for his staff like that. So, in July 1963... Uh, Peter actually wrote a letter to his mother, which began from appreciation. He started saying, like, thank you for all the updates. You know, I've basically been in lockup for Mm -hmm. the last couple of years, Mm -hmm. so it's great to hear what everybody in the family is doing. And then he moves on to this intense discussion on religion. So here is his philosophy. As for my philosophy, never have I said that I was anti-God or atheistic in my leanings, merely anti-Christianity. I search for the answers in a way a scientist does, accepting nothing on faith, theory, belief, hypothesis, etc. Only that which I can conclusively prove through systematic reason with facts only. That will I say is true. When you tell me that you are good and provoked at me, then I know that you are not using reason to answer questions, but simply emotions, which are notoriously poor fact finders. Mm -hmm. People only get mad when they can't advance anything in support of their claim. I maintain that Christianity is evil. It was founded in blood and has managed to get more people killed, either defending or destroying it, than in all time of recorded history have died other than natural causes. Perhaps the principles of Jesus Christ are the least hurtful part of it, i.e. the golden rule, etc. However, can you reconcile the mass murders of not one, which would have been one too many, not ten, not one hundred, but hundreds of thousands of people killed in cold blood because maybe they didn't happen to believe in the enlightened truths of the Most High? Many were actually true and firm believers, but they couldn't survive the tortures of the rock. Could you? Have you heard of St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre when more than 20,000 fellow human beings lost their lives in one day because of your cherished Christianity? Do you really think your Christian God was protecting the Huguenots and Waldenses when they murdered en masse to remove the opposition to Christ's church founded on the rock? No more than he was the 129 sailors who secretly went down in the Atlantic in a submarine. 
You asked me to show another way of life that has progressed as much as Christianity. You make your answer simple. Russia's in 45 years in the USSR has come from one of the most underdeveloped backward countries till it is second to none. Perhaps they don't have the liberties there, which we do, but look at the progress they have made. They may not drive Buicks around the block to pick up a loaf of bread, but in the things that count, they're way out in front. In space technology and research, we of the U.S. are way short. They can send a woman up there to make more laps than all seven of our overly praised astronauts. <laughs> Looks like you're just laughing up their sleeves. It's no fool. He wants nuclear war no more than we do, but he will win economically. I know economics is probably a dry subject to you, but you read too much Red Book, Collier's, and Women's Home Companion anyway. Try some history for change. TV Macaulay is good, or science, or economics. I tried to show you a month or so ago where our currency will collapse, but you won't listen. That time is fast approaching. How far can this government go into debt? How high can taxes rise? Just how big can you blow a balloon? I'm reading some of Whittier's poetry lately. Very good. Some are about those terrible old New England witches. You know, the ones that the good Puritan fathers hanged or burned at the stake. <laughs> I wonder why we don't have any witches around anymore. They probably all killed off and didn't get a chance to raise anymore. Do you suppose? Whittier's The Exiles is fine reading, too. As always, Pete. That went to his family? That went to his mother, who was sending him like encouraging letters right. and trying to have help him improve and sending him these. It's a lot of religious texts that she would send right. him, and he's just like, "Hey, everything you believe is a lie and a farce, and I don't believe any of it." And also, think of all the blood on your hands for like supporting this sort of thing. It's and also the Russians are doing great in the middle of the Cold War. <laughs> like, hey, bud, what's going on? Very. He's just a contrarian, I think. Yeah. And he likes thrills. And... Well, and if he's, I mean, if he's intelligent, again, there's a sense of arrogance to this yeah. of like, maybe you should read a book. Yeah. Which he was wrong about the witches and they weren't burned at the stake, but I'll let him have it, I guess. <laughs> so after writing this letter, he's released. He's back in the yard, September 4th, 1963. He's actually sent to the cannery to help with some uh, peeling. And he's given the task to peel some carrots. But the officer on duty actually knows that Peter was, quote, not working, just going through the motions. So he was shirking his work and slowing down the work of other prisoners. And the officer warned him and that he better work harder or he'd be disciplined. And then, quote, after half an hour with no improvement, I escorted inmate Martin to the captain's office, where he was punished to another month in number five house. So he's released October 4th, 1963. And given a job as janitor in number three house. Come on, Peter. A few months later, in February 1964, he gets a job in the prison library. Okay. That's a place for him. His last job was in the machine shop back in number uh -huh. two yards. Uh -huh. So he keeps getting promoted to different positions. Is it promoted or more just like where can he do the least amount of damage? <laughs> where <Well>. can... <laughs> <laughs> He actually files for a writ of habeas corpus in 1965, claiming that he had asked for an attorney while being questioned by police back in Burley for the holdup at the service station. So this original thing in 1959. And he said that both times the officers told him that he would have an attorney when he appeared before the magistrate. And uh, Peter said that when he went in front of the magistrate, he was told the county would not furnish him an attorney. So he simply pleaded guilty because he didn't understand the law or what he should be doing at that time. Mm -hmm. During the summer of 66, 
it, this bid is rejected, this habeas corpus that courts mm-hmm. are saying, you mm-hmm. know, they, they actually say, quote, I conclude that although his arraignment could have been more complete, he did knowingly and intelligently waive counsel in district court. And considering the proceedings as a whole, he did receive fair treatment. So sorry, your habeas corpus is mm-hmm. not valid here. Mm-hmm. So while he was feeling that in 1965, the year before, he also went before the Board of Pardons and was granted a parole on his robbery charge, but, of course, was immediately retained at the prison to serve his second five-year sentence on escape. And there he told the board that his mother had left Gooding and was now living in Seattle at a Catholic church dormitory where she worked as a cook and, and lived there at the site. And uh, he told the board, you know, I want to go and help her, and I also want to go to school and take some business administration courses. Mm-hmm. So. In May 1965, he wrote a letter to his mother and sisters that his mother described in a July letter to the new warden, Mark Maxwell, as, quote, most abusive toward me and resentful of his sisters. And his mother, again, shared a sentiment that many of us who have had relatives in the institution have felt. I cannot understand a man of Pete's age to be so very resentful, but I no doubt do not understand life in prison either. Heaven knows I am far from being a perfect person or a model mother, but I do not think I deserve such abuse from an only son whom I dearly love and want to help if he if he but let me. It seems to me that Pete's subconscious mind, he has allowed to inhibit resentments, etc., about his sister, and especially me, his mother. We were also very happy last year when he was sent to Blackfoot for an appraisal, and I felt certain real help. My mother heart hoped and prayed Pete would let them help him. I cannot comprehend what happened then, for without doubt he needed psychiatric help then, as he does now. And either shame or remorse, he is refusing to write to me, and I am hoping his time is occupied with a lot of hard, constructive work, so he has little time for self-pity. At the bottom of the letter, she wrote, And so I gaze at my only son's picture and wonder what happened, what went wrong, and my heart bleeds time and again, and my tears flow freely to cleanse my hurt. Mm, That is so sad. So she ends by asking Maxwell to send her former pen pal Warden Clapp best wishes in his new job as Idaho's Secretary of State, which Mm -hmm. he had just become. And we'll touch on Clapp throughout this season because we've got a big publication coming out Mm -hmm. in May. So in August 1966, Jeanette Martin wrote into Maxwell, then Warden of the State Penitentiary, with joy to hear that Pete was set to be released a month later. And she wanted to know what his release would entail. Like, would he have to go back to Arkansas? Would he be paroled in Idaho? Was there any other supervision he'd have to follow? You know, she she also said that she was going to send a copy of Sermon on the Mount, which uh, okay. she said was a very powerful book. And she thought that it would help any prisoner that read it here. So it was going to be part of the new prison library, mm. a new part of the prison library. Warden Maxwell, he actually responds two days later that upon his final release, Pete's civil rights would be restored and he would not be supervised and could go wherever he wanted. Hmm. He also thanked Jeanette for the book, Sermon on the Mount, stating, quote, I have read the book and am sure it will be helpful to any inmate who reads it. I will tell Pete you sent it and perhaps he too will read it. It was about a month before his release. Hmm. So he had told the board that if he was simply paroled, he would have had a much more difficult time finding a job as a self-described three-time loser. The board agreed, and Peter Jeremy Martin was discharged from the penitentiary on September 16, 1966. 
1959 to 1966. He took his personal and hobby craft items with him, including two small belts, two small holsters, two rings, four leather keychains, two necklaces, six earrings, two billfolds, two key rings with keys, an exacto knife, and a stack of letters. So what we have in his prison file is probably about half of them. Mm. <laughs> and once he was released, it seems he, he did. He stayed here in Idaho. He went kind of southeast Idaho, Pocatello area. He married a woman named Rosemary Richardson on April 9th, 1968 in Pocatello, Idaho at the First Baptist Church. And Peter was then 29 years old and Rosemary was 20. And I actually found several articles in the Idaho State Journal in Pocatello about Rosemary being a cowgirl and competing in, in rodeos down there. And the summer before their 1968 marriage, Rosemary and 12 other young women completed for rodeo royalty title the a Frontier Rodeo Queen and Little Rodeo Queen <laughs> at the Bannock County Fairgrounds. The winner of the Little Rodeo, they would actually get a little Shetland pony. Oh, cute. So I was like, oh, man, that's fun. Uh, she did not win, mm. but the winner did that year get uh, hosted by cowboy singer, country music hall of famer Tex Ritter during the rodeo, who performed there at the at the fair. So Rosemary, on all accounts, she was a hospitality girl at Pocatello High School, which was basically a hall monitor and a guide for visitors. <laughs> you know, she's a rodeo queen, and or well, she wants to be. She's right. vying for that. She's just like a good, good young woman. Mm-hmm. She was also really active in church, so we can only speculate what her family and mm. friends probably thought of her marrying this self-appointed three-time loser. There's a write-up about their beautiful ceremony with a green and white color scheme, and the couple did not last long. They were actually oh. divorced in October 1969, so mm. about a year and a half that they were married. We can speculate that uh, it's probably, it could have been his impulsiveness or possibly infidelity because a month later he was filing for a marriage license in Elko with 26-year-old Nancy McCarthy of Fort Hall. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and they stayed together. I didn't see other, th- other than him getting pulled over for excessive speed in 70 and 71. During the winter of 1971, he was actually attempting to adopt Nancy's son, Greg. Mm. And so I found all these articles informing the, the father of Greg that, you know, we are going to adopt. But two months after the last form of these came out, Nancy and Pete divorced in mm. 1971. And later that summer, I found uh, an annual financial report for the Pocatello School District where a Peter J. Martin worked as a bus driver. And that is where my trail ended on mm, Peter. So interesting. He, he may have moved out of state. He mm-hmm. may still be alive. Yeah. We, I I really don't know. But uh, you know, this all all started from this woman witnessing this filming yeah. of Kenneth Hastings' video for our Thirteen Stories event, and then coming in and just being so heartfelt and saying she, she's like, you know, I I've never really thought about it, and then when I saw them recreating the scene mm. it right. i welled up i didn't realize how emotional and how much it impacted and how me and scary absolutely yeah, yeah and she just remembers her mom going into the courthouse and mm. like and her dad being freaked out about the whole thing and right. watching 
all the news on the TV right. and everything else during huh. that time period. So, wow. you know, next time you drive up to the old pen right at the end of the road, yeah. all of this this escape attempt happened. Next time you're driving on Broadway, you pass the Seriously. you know the jiffy, that little laundry right yeah. there in Garfield Elementary. You know that Man. Peter ripped down that street. That's crazy. Crashed a car and yeah. That's so interesting. So wild. Well, excellent work per usual. Thanks, guy. I, it's been a long time. Yeah, I know, but you did. I mean, it oh. didn't feel like it. Oh. Oh, good. Okay. Right, right back on form. <laughs> Great. In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. The Old Idaho Penitentiary became part of the Idaho State Historical Society in 1975. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. Well, let's talk about one of your ladies. Yeah. Okay. Again, I mean, I don't feel that I have quite as much information as you do, but <sighs> I am very excited um, about this uh, episode. So I am talking today about number 1537, Hattie McCormick. Oh. So my sources are her inmate file, Ancestry.com records, Daily Statesman articles, the Library of Congress chronicling America, newspapers.com, the Washington County official site, a Wikipedia article on Washington County, Idaho.gov, the Cambridge, Idaho official website, and most importantly, um, information from Hattie's granddaughter, Judy Louise. So we got so much wonderful information from her, and uh, we actually got to sit down and speak with her. So tune in this Saturday for our very first Stool Pigeon Saturday with Judy Louise, who is just the most lovely woman And it was so so wonderful to have her here. Mm -hmm. She will be telling um, what she remembers about Hattie because she actually, a lot of the information we have on what happened while Hattie was incarcerated comes from her. And so, so thankful for her getting in touch with us. She actually got in touch with us because of the numbered uh, book where she saw that we had profiled her, her grandmother. And so just so thankful that she got in touch with us and that she was willing to give us the information and talk with us and I'm very excited for you to hear it because I, I too like this hap- we recorded it this summer and I still this last summer I guess and uh, I, I still think about how wonderful it was oh, and, and how yeah. lovely she is and so with that said you know we'll get started so um, Hattie McCormick was born Hattie Blank on July 21st 1878 or maybe 1879, or maybe 1880. Um, there are sort of evidence for all three of those dates, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. She was born in Cove, Oregon, which is about 20 miles east of La Grande, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Her parents were Nathan Blank and Annette, who also went by Nettie, actually, mm-hmm. Castle. So her mother's maiden name was Castle. And Hattie was fourth of eight children. She had four brothers, George Washington, and Charles, who were her older brothers. And then she had two younger brothers, Edward and Alan. And then she had an older sister, Elsie, and younger sisters, Martha and Catherine. 
So her mother died on January 4th, 1886. Now, Hattie would have been eight. Her intake form says, however, that she was five when her mother died, which would sort of give some evidence to maybe a a later birth year, 1880 or so. But there is some dispute as to the cause of her death. The issue was I couldn't find any records of this death. So on findagrave.com, which is I can access, you can access through Ancestry, um, it states that she dies days after the birth of Catherine. But there is actually a comment from a great-granddaughter whose name wasn't on it, but great-granddaughter of Nettie posted a comment and said that Alan, who was the youngest brother, was born in September 1885, making it incredibly unlikely that she would have died just, what is that, four months later giving birth to another baby, unless it was a, a stillborn situation or something, which is possible. Yeah. So, it, But basically, it makes a live birth impossible. So there is question as to if this Catherine, this youngest sister, is, you know, it may have been a stillborn situation, but she said, this. I remember this great-granddaughter said, like, I've gotten in contact with the person who made this sort of biography on Nettie's page, and they won't take this information down. So we don't know where that sort of information is coming from. Mm-hmm. So we don't know if, if Catherine, that youngest sister, was born but that was sort of what I could find. But we do know for sure that Alan was born. So, you know, she may have been four of seven rather than four of eight, but that was kind of a rabbit hole I got stuck in. And um, especially with these earlier ones where just records don't exist quite like they do later, um, things get a little muddled. So all that to say, you know, she was still sort of fourth in the lineup. She attended school for about five years, and on her intake form, she says that she left home when she was nine years old, which is super young. Don't know why, because uh, her father was still alive. She had, you know, younger siblings. You know, her mother would have just died the year before. Judy Louise actually says that she had not heard that, because I think we wrote about it in the numbered book, and she said, I had never heard that before. And she doesn't know why she would have left home so early. So that's, again, another question mark. And, and so it's interesting, why is Hattie reporting that? herself because remember everything on the intake forms is reported by the inmates so there's a lot of question marks about you know is Hattie trying to make herself younger is she trying to make herself look more sympathetic did she leave at nine we don't you know we don't know but that's it's an awfully young age to leave I just thought of this possibility now unless she meant she left after nine years of school which would make her a little bit older in the teenage years Um, but again like you know, because there's that question that says left home at blank age. That's the only thing I can think of that maybe she left when she was a teenager, but that's still young. You know, ninth grade is what, 13? The other thing that we do know, according to her intake form, is she was raised as a Methodist and she attended Methodist Sunday school growing up. But Mm. that sort of, all of that confusion is what we know about her early life. So um, what we do know is on March 21st, 1895, she married Joseph J. McCormick in Baker, Oregon. Judy Louise said that Hattie was not yet 16 when she got married, which again sort of leans toward that later 1880 birth year. So together, Joseph and Hattie had six children together. Now here's some more confusion, so get ready. Birth years are crazy. (laughs) So we do know for sure their first child was a son named Everett, who was born in 1896. Next is Ethel, who, um, according to all the ancestry records I could find, said November 1899. Then there was a a son named Rupert born in December 1899, which the so (laughs) I seriously I looked back 
I, I found every I like looked at each of their individual records and it could like November 1899 and December 1899. So the only thing that I can think of is that they were twins, but were born a couple days apart, yeah. which is rare, but it can happen. So, I mean, really weird. 1159 and 12.05. Or like, like there can even be days. Like if, you know, the first one comes out, you know, November 30th, and then the next one's born December 2nd or something. Like it's possible. But um, Judy Louise actually gave us the notes that she had taken in the family history. Mm -hmm. And her notes say that Ethel, the older one, was born actually in 1898, which of course would make so much more sense but until i I found those notes i was like i do not understand what what is going on um (laughs) but again like if we hadn't had judy louise's notes like that would have been my assumption is that they were like twins like weirdly born a couple days apart in different months so you know ancestry records of course are invaluable but you know sometimes they they get a little confusing yeah so anyway so we've got everett ethel rupert then we've got nathan born in 1902 Nettie, born in 1905, and finally Gladys, born in 1906. Because so, uh, according to my notes, when I still was thinking about the Rupert Ethel, they were actually born about 15 days apart, <sighs> according to the dates in their records. Which again is, I looked it up. I like, I was like, can this happen? And it is pot like people it has happened. What? It's not just like 11:59 to midnight. It's Whoa. like several days apart. But again, I think because of Judy Louise's notes, we're going to go with that Ethel was born. Are you in labor for like 15 I mean, days? Or, or I think, like... I don't know, frankly, oh. how labor works. <laughs> I don't, I don't. But, I, you know, like <laughs> there was, there were several cases I found that that, that had happened. So, yeah. Okay. I mean, the human body is crazy. That's for sure. So, um, anyway, so we've got all six kids. <laughs> as far as we know, everything <laughs> seems normal. <laughs> So in 1901, so that's actually right after Rupert's birth. So they just had three kids at that time. Joseph actually bought a plot of land in Cambridge, Idaho, which is in Washington County. Mm -hmm. Um, He bought 160 acres, or I should say he, there was 160 acres credited to him. This could have been under the Homestead Act, which, you know, we've mentioned several times before. You're basically given an amount of acreage. If you farm it for a certain amount of years, it's yours to keep. This is pretty late that, you know, that Homestead Act was especially in sort of the mid 1800s. But they were, you know, it was active until I think like the 1920s, 1930s. So very possible that that and especially in Idaho, it's still pretty sparsely populated. Um, So it's possible that that happened. So then in October 29th, 1907, Hattie and Joseph get divorced. So Hattie was actually um, awarded full custody of all six children. Now, um, family rumors sort of intimated that there may have been abuse against Hattie and the children, but we don't have anything definitive to corroborate this. This was, again, just something that we heard from uh, Judy Louise. There is a possibility that the divorce happened because she was having an affair with William Haston Goodman. Um, now, here's an interesting fact. William Goodman was actually the McCormick's neighbor. He was granted a plot of land right next to them at the, like, the same exact day that Joseph got his. Oh. So they have always been neighbors. Oh. But we don't we don't know that that's why. But, you know, the proximity of things, you know, makes it quite possible. So we're going to pause here. 
We're going to talk about Washington County. So um, Washington County is in the uh, south uh, western part of the state. We it bumps right up against um, the state of Oregon. So the area was likely a crossroads for um, Nez Perce, uh, Paiute, and Shoshone Bannock tribes. And some sources say it was Shoshone Bannock only. But because Native Americans were often incredibly mobile, you know, I don't think it would be you know irrational to say that several different tribes would have been in and out of that area. So the first documented white man in the area was a man named Donald McKenzie. Um, and then settlers began streaming into the area in the 1860s after a statewide gold rush and gold was discovered in the area. So about uh, 20 years later, uh, Washington County is founded on February 20th, 1879. And unsurprisingly, it is named after President George Washington. No way. I know. Shocking. <laughs> And so the total area of the county is about 1,474 square miles, and it is um, one of Idaho's westernmost counties, and it borders um, Malheur County and Baker County in Oregon. So again, bumping right up against um, that other state. So Weezer is currently the county seat, and it, uh, Weezer actually has over half of the county's population. Cambridge, which is where our story takes place, is actually the second largest city in the county with only about 300 people in the 2010 census. <laughs> so that shows you just how rural yeah. this county really is. Um, and it I, you know, kind of always has been it's very much an agricultural hub. Like a lot of onions are out there, potatoes are grown out there, if I recall correctly. And Cambridge was actually the crossroads of sort of wagon trails on both the Oregon and the California wagon trails. Cambridge was founded in 1900 after the Pacific and the Northern Idaho Railroad actually laid tracks on the west side of Weezer River, so it made the city accessible. And uh, Cambridge was also a source of supplies during gold and mineral booms in the area, and it was also a supply depot for freighting from Boise City um, in eastern Oregon. And then uh, it was also a site of a CCC, so, so a site of a civilian conservation camp in the 1930s. So there would have been a lot of people out there working the land and, and things like that during the New Deal trying to get you know, nice. the economy stimulated again. Yeah. So the county population for Washington County in 2010 was 10,198. The 2018 estimate was 10,161. So it's just, there's no growth. There's not really much of a, a decline either. And then every year, Washington, the Washington County Fair takes place in Cambridge at the Washington County Fairgrounds. And... It is also home to the National Old Time Fiddlers Contest and Festival in Weezer. And that actually was first held in 1953. So this is, I mean, I would bet this is, I don't know if they had it in 2020, but that was probably the first year that they hadn't had it in, you know, several. Yeah. So um, hopefully when things are back up and running, if and when that happens this oh, year, yes, um, you know, feel free to go check that. I hear it's a great time. It's yeah. pretty well known in the area. It's oh, like a absolutely. pretty serious competition from what I, yeah, like, from what I can tell. It's, this is not just like a local, like let's get people together and yeah. fiddle. This is like, you have to have like a certain amount of pieces and you have to know how to play in this certain way. And yeah. it looks pretty intense. And then um, one last little uh, tidbit, I suppose. I thought this was very funny. That according to Wikipedia, Washington County is home to the Idaho ground squirrel. So, oh. so that's kind of fun, I guess. <laughs> I don't know why they wouldn't live elsewhere, but that's what, you know, Wikipedia said. So everything's <laughs> accurate on there, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so again, take that, that one for what it's worth. 
So um, let's get back to our story, and we're going to talk a little bit about William Haston Goodman, who a lot of this information actually came from Anthony, um, who was able to pull um, research for me. So William was born in 1865 in Bates County, Missouri, which actually would have been right toward the end of the Civil War in, you know, kind of a, an area where that there's a lot of conflict and, and contestation going on. William's father died when he was just one year old, and we do know he had at least one brother named James. Again, supposedly William left home at nine years old. This was in his file as well. He moved west to Oregon. And in 1891, he married Mary Olive, who went by Olive, um, Mary Olive Wright. And uh, that was in Baker County, Oregon. So he's in Oregon as well. And in 19, we know in 1901, he applied for that plot of land in Cambridge. And then in 1904, he applied for and got a land grant in Gem County, Idaho. So he's got a couple different properties going on there. Then in 1908, he applied for another land grant in Washington County, and that may have been on top sort of to add to the one he already had in 1901 in Cambridge, but uh, the most information that I had was it was just a land grant in Washington County. So there are newspapers from the Salt Lake Tribune written on February 9th, 1909 and February 17th, 1909 that say that William and Mary had several children, but this is contested. Um, William's intake form said he didn't have any children. I could not find any ancestry records confirming that they had any children it is rare to see a couple married for 18 years without without kids but you know of course it's not impossible Mm -hmm. um you know circumstances you know sometimes just make children not a a thing that couples can can have so a weird way to say that (laughs) it's fine we're just back for the first time getting used to words again um so anyway so supposedly by 1908 william and olive were separated so now we're back hattie and william for we we don't know the details of their arrests or how sort of the information of their uh, affair would have gotten to the authorities but by february 9th 1909 william was being held in the washington county jail um so they were likely arrested sort of that last week of january or the first week of february and we know that because according to the salt lake tribune william's wife died a few days after he was arrested on february 5th supposedly quote of a broken heart leaving several small children so again that's that same newspaper article that said they had children though i could not find evidence of that but regardless she did die you know you know four days after his arrest so even though hattie was divorced william was not and even though you know his wife had now died this whole thing had happened while she was alive making them both guilty of adultery which it's that is such a hard crime for us to understand in this modern day because you know it, it, it is so unfortunately common Mm -hmm. and that's not something that you know anyone gets prosecuted for anymore unless it's some you know really weird extenuating circumstance and i think we've talked about this that adultery hasn't been used fornication has you know re somewhat recently but it was sort of uh for a a minor case and Mm -hmm. anyway this is an adultery case and it's so hard for us to understand but you know that that was the crime of the time like i said i don't know if perhaps joseph turned them in or what the situation was there but somehow authorities got wind of it considered it egregious enough to arrest them and so they were arrested and the salt lake tribune says that it was quote claimed the prosecution has indisputable evidence against goodman again he was sort of the more guilty one and that it was his wife that was still alive but you know they both both parties were were involved so 
while William was being held in county jail, he heard of his wife's death leading to a suicide attempt. And this is in the Salt Lake Tribune from February 17th, 1909. Quote, it is thought that his arrest, coupled with the death of his wife, rendered him temporarily insane. He butted his head against the iron bars of his cell, cutting a number of deep gashes from which blood flowed freely, rendering him unconscious. Other prisoners in the cell gave the alarm, and he was taken to a hospital, where he is receiving medical treatment under guard. He remained unconscious all night and is in a precarious condition, end quote. So because Hattie had had full custody of all six children and she was arrested, new arrangements had to be made regarding the children's care before she entered prison. So there was a decision from the Washington County Courts on February 26, 1909, where basically Hattie and Joseph split custody. So Hattie got the youngest kids, which would be Nathan, who was seven, Nettie, who was four, and Gladys, who was two and a half. And then Joseph got the oldest kids, Everett, who was 12, Ethel, who was 11, and Rupert, who was nine. And so obviously Hattie still can't take care of her kids. And so her youngest kids were actually put into custody in the children's home the next day, which was the same day that she entered prison. And we know this because of Judy Louise. So again, so thankful for that. It was actually a document that we as sort of public historians are not able to access, but because she was family, she was able to get that information. Now, there is actually something very interesting. So Ethel, who should have been in Joseph's custody, um, was actually technically received at the children's home, but then was released to the care of a woman named Mrs. Collender in Emmett. We don't know why. I mean, you know, best guess is maybe she didn't want to live with her father, and so they had a family friend in Emmett, um, and that was sort of the, the arrangement they had to make. Even Judy Louise wasn't sure why that was. But so we have, we, saw, we see the three youngest, Nathan, Nettie, and Gladys, um, all being put in the children's home, and then Ethel, who was put into um, Mrs. Collender's care. So Hattie McCormick and William Goodman entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on February 27th, 1909. Um, so her intake form, uh, she was 29 years old when she entered, according to her own intake, which I think, again, would be about 1879 or 1880 birth year. Um, she said she was born in La Grande, Oregon. Um, her sentence was one year for adultery. Her legitimate occupation was a housekeeper. Color of hair, dark brown. Color of eyes, dark. Has uh, six children and is separated. She, The name and address of her nearest relative was listed as Nathan Black, who lived in Pine Creek, Idaho, which is a little um, like mining area in the north, um, as far as I could tell. And then the property found on the convict, she had $3.22, um, and her purse... Her clothes and her purse were kept in a package in the commissary department for her to get back when she um, was finished. So, you know, again, uh, we don't know that much about her time in prison. She would have been in the remodeled warden's house before, which was what existed before the current women's ward was there. The other women in the ward with her would have been Josie Kensler, who we profiled in season one, episode two, Jenny Daly, who we covered in season one, episode seven, and Cora Stanfield, who was season two, episode seven, and she was also in for adultery. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's quite a cast of characters in that women's ward (laughs) um all of them who had you know some experience with lovers i guess would be a way to say that (laughs) um it would have been an that is that would be a time that i would be so fascinated to go like time travel and see like what's going on here guys like what are what are we talking about (laughs) this might be a 13 stories video Mm. in the making right here yeah seriously (laughs) 
So again, uh, according to Judy Louise and the information that she has, she would have sewed clothes for her children while she was there because again, she is a mother and she does care much in the way that our other Nettie did. She cares about her children and even though she did this thing that was wrong, she wanted to make sure that they were still being taken mm-hmm. care of. Um, Judy Louise reads just the most touching letter. <sighs> so I really can't wait for you guys to hear it because it, it really, I think we all teared up yeah. <laughs> because she teared, it just so emotional. So... She sewed close for her children. She probably did some gardening, but that's all we know. So she was granted parole and released on July 7th, 1909. So she ended up serving four months and 10 days of a one-year sentence. Um, and then she was officially pardoned on October 6th, 1909. So she was let off pretty light. And and I think that's, I mean, adultery is, you know, it's um, not necessarily harmless, but it is so much more harmless than most other crimes people came into the the penitentiary for now just a a quick fact so william goodman was actually not paroled um, and released until march 29th 1910 so he uh, ended up serving almost a full year longer in the prison than um, hattie did so hattie returned to washington county where she met fritz rosenloff who was a son of swedish immigrants about five years her senior the couple married in weezer on july 7th 1910 about three months after her official pardon And it seems that they lived briefly in Enterprise, Oregon, before they moved to Nampa, Idaho. And together, Fritz and Hattie had three daughters. So this is nine kids total. So they had Fuchsia in 1912, Fern in 1913, and Ellen in 1917. Now, as far as I could tell, they actually separated sometime in the 1920s because in the 1920 census, Fritz is not listed in the same household. In fact, he, I couldn't even find a census for him. Mm. Um... In 1930, his census, where the census I found him in, lists his marital status as divorced, and he was living and working in Owyhee County. So he's still in Idaho, but doesn't seem like he's with Hattie and the kids anymore. And actually, in 1930, the census lists Hattie as widowed, um, and she was actually working as a chambermaid at a hotel in Huntington, Oregon. So it just seems that they weren't together. And, you know, obviously we don't know the circumstances behind that. And then Fritz actually died on July 6, 1937 of typhoid fever in Boise. Wow. So, you know, they would have been married uh, about 10 years uh, is, is all at most. Um, and then um, seems that he perhaps died alone. There's not much um, else that I could find. In June 1939, Hattie's daughter Ethel was actually in a fatal car accident when her car was hit by a man named Howard Pike. And um, the Idaho Daily Statesman article from September 1939 states that Hattie was suing Pike for $15,475, accusing him of, quote, negligent, reckless, and careless driving, end quote. Um, The case was eventually settled and the suit was dismissed. Then, in 1940, she is listed as living in Boise, living with her daughter Fern and two lodgers, and then a 1941 city directory has her back in Huntington, Oregon. The only records then that I could find from there was that Hattie McCormick Rosenloff died on August 8, 1957, in Weezer Memorial Hospital from a cerebral hemorrhage due to hypertension. So she would have been 78 years old. And she's actually buried in the Mount Hope Cemetery in Baker, Oregon. So that is um, the short, but I think nevertheless, kind of packed yeah. uh, story of, of um, Hattie McCormick, our num- one, number 1537. Can't wait for everybody to listen to this I Saturday because yes. she fills in mm-hmm. so much 
emotional detail Absolutely. about this story. Ugh. Yeah, and and that's I think something that you know we so often miss that even if yeah. we have these letters and even if mm-hmm. we have we can, you know she if she's sewing clothes for her children, it's clear that there is an emotional attachment there. Mm-hmm. But we just beca- you know we don't get to talk to people yeah. too often, especially with the women. You know, with some of the men, we're able to get family and and things like that. But we have huge gaps with the women, mm-hmm. and so having Judy Louise come in and talk to us and and be so honest and and forthright and willing to tell her grandmother's story it was truly touching and I'm so excited for you guys to hear um, what she has to say and she's been excited I've been keeping her uh, sort of up to date with oh, the God. podcast and and letting her know like hey I'm writing the episode and so I think uh, I'm really excited to have this come out and to have her Stool Pigeon Saturday come out as well great work yeah, Scott we've thanks. got a lot of fun Stool Pigeon Saturdays totally coming up this season so Stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, wow. I mean, that's... Episode one. Uh, feels so good. It does. Feels good to be back. I feel like I'm getting back into the swing of it, so mm-hmm. it's only going to get better from here Seriously. This yeah. If this one was a little rough, forgive us. We... That... I don't know why, but maybe just to me, but that last ep- that last season felt like it took so long. It, yeah. Yeah. Which I don't feel like these ones take quite as long. Yeah. Or maybe it's just because it was a different kind of work. So, yeah, that's it. But still. All right. Well, let's do this again next week. Totally. All right. Do your own time. Do your own number. We'll talk to you guys this Saturday. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. This is my grandmother's handwriting. Mm. Wow. And and look at how fancy she does her McCormick and yeah, gorgeous handwriting. She's and and she says here. The patron of the orphan's home, dear madam, I am sending some clothes to the McCormick children. The names of each one are on their clothes. I am also sending each of the little girls a teddy bear, as I promised to get them one some time ago.